three groups of people. If you're not in one of these groups, you can feel free to take a nap or leave. But if you are in one of these groups, I would encourage you to let God's word impress upon your hearts. The first group of people that will be addressed this morning are people who are not Christians. People who would say, no, I am, I am not a Christian. I, 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 I do not subscribe to Christianity for whatever different reasons. First off, let me say this. It's good in a sense to acknowledge that you are not a Christian. It's, and I say that, in, that it's better than acting like you're one knowing that you're not. All right? And so if you're not a Christian this morning and you say that you're not a Christian, this message is for you and I would encourage you to take heed to it and to listen to it. And we welcome you here with, with open arms. There have been a number of people uh, who have come in here who say they are not Christians and they are exploring the faith. And if you have any questions, we are more than willing to sit down with you and discuss certain things with you. So welcome this morning. And you will be in the first group. The second group of people that will be addressed this morning are Christians that feel as if they are drifting right now. Or Christians who feel uh, that they are two steps away from drifting. Or Christians who have drifted before. That would be the second group of people. And the third group of people that I want to address this morning is anyone that has blood flowing through their veins. (laughs) Amen? All right. Now, if you do not fall in one of those categories, you feel free to, to dip out. But if you do fall in one of those categories, let's listen to what the Lord has given us in his word. Amen. When this letter was written, it was written to similar groups of people. Now, one of the biggest differences from the people that they were originally written to is that they would have had a a, a very good understanding of the, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. You know, when people would take goats or, or, or sheep. And, and, and take them to the priests and sacrifice them. They're very familiar with that, that culture. But for the most part, it addressed similar people in those groups that I was talking about earlier. Now, right quick, before I keep going, on this note of drifting, let me, let me say this. It is very easy to drift away from God. It's, it's easy. Matter of fact, I would say that if we're not doing anything, that, that, that's what will happen. That, that, that's our default nature to go away from God. As a matter of fact, I believe that uh, if, if you were to imagine uh, a stream, God is at this, God is over here, and we're born, born drifting this way. It's something that naturally happens. If you've ever been fishing before, you know this. You turn the boat off, and you're out on the boat, and then the next thing you know, you are you know, a, a, a quite a bit of ways from where you originally stopped. It's easy to drift. But I want to encourage us this morning, all right? Let the scriptures encourage us this morning. Now, this book is filled with warnings for people who have experienced the goodness of God, but have not repented and turned away from their sins. They're, they're, they're people who are not genuine. In other words, people who know how to play church but never trusted and submitted their lives to God. It's written to people who are drifting. This book, this letter to the Hebrews, this book of Hebrews should cause for all of us to examine ourselves. 
Now, you may have heard me say this before, but, but growing up, I had a friend who, in children's church, every time we would talk about the book of Revelation, he'll step out of the room because he was, he was scared, you know, to hear about Revelation and the end times and everything that will happen. And as I grew up and I started reading Hebrews, I was like, ooh, this seems a little bit more scarier <laughs> than, than, than Revelation because this is addressing, I grew up in church, right? I know how to do church, right? So this is addressing me, and it hits me right where I am. So let me get you... Let me get you to where led up to, to this text that we are in this morning. In the chapter before, we see the consequence of continuing. This is chapter 10. We see the consequence of continuing in unrepentant sin and a plea for the people to not continue in it. And then we have chapter 11, which is dedicated to the opposite of rejecting God, and that is having faith in God. So chapter 10 is talking about rejecting God and, 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 and continuing in unrepentant sin. And then in chapter 11, it's like we have this rebuttal to that, and that's having faith in God. Having faith in God, especially for salvation, especially as it relates to salvation. So up until this point, chapter 11 has a, a, a list of people of how different people had faith in God in different situations. Now, I have five different encouragements from the text that we read this morning. And the first one is, the writer of Hebrews encourages with examples of specific people. Now, our text this morning starts off mentioning some familiar names. Now, once again, keep in mind that this is just where our text starts. The whole chapter has been communicating the same idea that we see communicated here. But it's important to note that the writer of Hebrews intentionally names familiar people here in this text. One reason is because we are likely to make a connection with something that we recognize. In this case, we're, they are likely to make a connection with someone whose name that they know. These names and figures were popular among them. They heard about them. They were taught about them from their parents and as they went to the temples and, and to uh, the synagogue. So they were familiar with these people, and these names were used to drive home the author's purpose in, this, in writing this letter. Now, you'll hear me saying the author a number of times because we don't know for sure who wrote the book of Hebrews. There are many different speculations, right? And so just for the sake of this morning, I'm just going to say the author. Now, because he has spent so much time explaining what he did in the beginning of the chapter, he says that he doesn't even have time to talk about these other people, the people that we read about starting off our text. Well, I have a little bit more time than he had, and so I want to take a little time to, to, to talk about them. So let's dive into it, and I won't spend time the same amount of time on each person. So Gideon is first up. Now, Gideon was actually, as a child, as I was growing up, it was one of my favorite Bible characters. And as the text has it and judges, it says, One day, while, while Gideon was, was minding his business, preparing to hide things from his enemies, the angel of the Lord came to Gideon and said that he would use Gideon to deliver the Israelites from their enemies. He would use Gideon to deliver, uh, to deliver the Israelites from their enemies. So first thing, you want to be blessed by God? Mind your business. Yeah. That's a joke. Don't, no. 
There's too many one another's in the Bible <laughs> for us to just mind our business. Pray for him. I just want to make sure I had y'all's attention. All right. So that same night, he came to Gideon and said, I'm going to use you. That same night, God used Gideon in an amazing way. He told Gideon, I want you to go and I want you to tear down this altar of Baal. Now, Baal was this, this, this God that, the, uh, that foreign people worshipped. And he also said, I want you to cut down the asteroid that's beside it as well. This asteroid was a, a wooden structure that was often placed by uh, the, the altars and the temples of false gods. Now, after these things were done, God told Gideon, after you tear down this altar and after you break down this, this asteroid, this wooden structure, I want you to build an altar for me. And I want you to take one of the bulls that you use to pull the altar down, and I want you to sacrifice it. And I want you to use the wood from that asherah to use to light the fire up. Now, that's a real boss move from God, right? You're taking the wood that you use, that you destroyed. I said, I want you to use this to sacrifice this bull. Now, when the people, the enemies who constructed or worshipped these altars and this asherah, when they found out what Gideon had did, they, they went to approach Gideon, and they met his father, and his father said, what do I got to do with y'all? Let Baal defend himself, which is a, an absolutely amazing response, right? Let, let, let Baal defend himself. And so they left. They were preparing to fight, and the Lord told Gideon, Gideon, you got too many people. You got too many people in your army. Now, at the time, Gideon had 32,000 people. God said, send home everybody who's afraid. So, 22,000 people left. <laughs> All right? Yana, you're good at math. How many people are left? Had 32,000, 22,000 people. How many people are left? 10,000 people. Good job. And then God said, Gideon, you still got too many people. Now, as you go drink from, this, from the water, from the pond, or I, I want you to separate everybody who laps, gets down like a dog to drink, and everybody who cups the water in their hand to drink. Now, 9,700 people got down like dogs to drink. And so I'm sure th Gideon is thinking, okay, I got 9,700 people to work with, and 300 people did the other thing. And then God said, keep the 300. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure Gideon was like, yo, like, what are you, what you doing, God? Like, I only got 300 people. But surely enough, God used those 300 people to do exactly what God said that he would do and deliver the Israelites from them. Wouldn't it be amazing if somebody wrote a movie about 300 people going off into war? <laughs> now, next up, we have Barak. Barak is probably the lesser known of this list. The Israelites were under their enemy's rule, and God told Deborah to tell Barak to gather men to attack this, the enemy. Barak went outnumbered in the same way that Gideon was, but he was successful in the mission in killing both the commander of the army and the king of the army. And it was by faith that Barak did this. That brings us to Jephthah, a man who, while was in battle, promised God that if God gave him the victory in this battle, that he would sacrifice the first thing that came out to meet him when he returned home. Now, if you know this story, you know that the first thing that came to greet him when he came back was his daughter. And sticking with his commitment to God, he sacrificed his daughter. And now we have Samson, known as physically the strongest man 
in the Bible. God had given this brother some supernatural strength that he used against the Philistines and those who mocked God. By Samson, or by faith, Samson trusted God. And now on to David, shepherd boy in the field, normal guy that God used to defeat the Philistines, was a great king of Israel and wrote a good bit of the Psalms that greatly encourage us. By faith, David did these things. And last but not least, we have Samuel used prophetically by God, showed the Israelites that God was still with them, even though the Philistines had the ark and held it down as Israel's representative. By faith, Samuel did this. Now, after we get this list of familiar people, we are given a peek at what they and other believers experience. This long list of miracles this long list of, of, of perseverance and, and suffering and mistreatment. And I have a few comments on this list. Persecution slash suffering and faith are not mutually exclusive. Suffering and persecution and our faith are not mutually exclusive. I say it every time and I will continue to say that it is absolutely impossible to follow the suffering servant without suffering yourself. Brothers and sisters, as you navigate through this difficult life, life and experience problem after problem and situations abound, know that you are in good company and that the Christian life has been designed this way. A couple years ago, I remember being in D.C. How many of you have driven in D.C. before? How many of you dislike driving in D.C.? Same, same, same people. Now, I learned that the roads in D.C. were intentionally created to be confusing, right? Because there's some important people there. It's the capital of the United States. And so I'm sure that centuries later, whoever planned those designs are happy <laughs> that those roads are still confusing to this day. Well, in that same manner, the Christian life has been planned, not necessarily to be confusing, but it was planned to be filled with trials. And once you understand this, it helps when they come. And this brings me to my second observation or encouragement about the text. Here, the author of Hebrews encourages through God's faithfulness in our present. In other words, don't Forget about or sleep on what God has already done and what God is doing in your life. Don't sleep on or forget about what God has done or what God is currently doing in your life. Now, the first half of this list shows that God intervened in their situations. Now, he does this at his own discretion, but nevertheless, God does it. God is not a God who is not involved in human interactions, but God very much so intervenes in the lives of people. Now, it says that there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might even gain a better uh, resurrection, and some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. So, yeah, we have difficult times in this life, but we are not left to deal with them alone in our own strength. As a matter of fact, we cannot deal with them alone in our own strength. Now, if you miss the design of suffering, 
And if you miss the inability from us to deal with it, then life will not be enjoyable for you. You miss out on a lot of joy when you do not understand those things. Now, one of the saddest things that I've seen is that in the Christian faith is when people walk away from God for this reason. This is one of the reasons why we hate false gospels. This is one of the reasons why we hate when churches preach a gospel that's not consistent with the scriptures and tell people to expect all of these different things and this amazing life and this wonderful life and this best life now and then when life hits them, not if, but when life hits them, they're confused and then they walk away from the faith because that's not what they were taught. That's why we hate when people teach foolishness. So one of the saddest things is when people walk away from God for this reason. They may not phrase it like this, but what they are saying is that they can deal with the pressures of life without God. They're saying that he isn't capable of helping them. And it's painful, not because of our, the, the garden's reputation or wanting to keep our numbers up, but it's painful because we actually acknowledge that people are carrying or attempting to carry what only God can carry for them. Now, although I said that it hurts to see people leave because of it, if we're honest, we do the same thing even within the church. Pride has a way of making us feel that we are stronger than what we actually are. The pride that tells the former basketball player that he can run around like he used to is the same pride that tells us that we don't need accountability. The pride that tells the frat brother that he can still do all of that barking and jumping around and splits like he used to do. It's the same pride that keeps us from confessing our sin. At any moment, we feel this, this false strength and try to carry what we have not been created to carry. Christian, you are still in need of God. Now, you could be listening to me and thinking, life is hard for everyone. Not just a Christian. And to that, I say, amen. You're absolutely right. Life is hard for everyone, from uh, the devout Jew to the Muslim around the corner to the Hebrew Israelite to the atheist and even to the man who wakes up at 5 o'clock every morning to read his Bible. I intentionally say that life is hard for the Christian because I want to say that we are not exempt from suffering and that our faith has a rich history of it. But we also recognize the purpose of it. You know that suffering produces endurance. And that endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope doesn't put us to shame. So yeah, people may suffer as non-Christians, but will that suffering result in something that is beneficial for them in this life and in this life to come. Which leads me to the next observation of the text, and that is that the author of Hebrews encourages through the reality of not getting everything in the present while at the same time having a hope for the future. There's a reality that we don't get everything in the present, but we have a hope for the future as well. Check out verse 39. And it actually mirrors uh, verse 13. Verse 39 says, They were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Now, if you go back to verse 13, it says, They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. I think that this is twofold for the people that uh, initially received this letter and for us as well. On one side, there is a call to just hold on 
a little bit longer. It's not all good now, but it will be. Now, people think that we're crazy for thinking like this. And with this being Black History Month, I feel even more encouraged with this truth. Why? Oftentimes I hear people say stuff like, white man has his heaven on earth and we got to wait for our pie in the sky. Right? Now, first off, y'all know me. And if you don't know me, know that I do not shy away from talking about racist systems and structures that have been set up to prevent black folk and minorities from succeeding, succeeding and keep them oppressed. Y'all know I do not shy away from that at all. Scroll down Facebook timeline, you'll probably see some here and there, right? I think that that evil has always been problematic. And while a lot of stuff has been deemed illegal, we still see the effects of it today, right? But at the same time, Joel, you feel like you got heaven on earth right now? This guy. <laughs> so, thank you. Casey, you feel like you got heaven on earth right now? Chuck, feel like you got heaven on earth right now? What's that? It's a better heaven coming. Raymond Chasson, feel like you got heaven on earth right now? See, civil rights should be pursued. Injustice should be challenged. Isaiah 117 tells us to seek justice and to correct oppression. And I stand here extremely grateful for the different ways that that has been done, not only for people who look like me, but for events and rallies across the universe that have, uh, have uh, changed, have caused a change for the good. And at the same time, I recognize that as greatest things are, that the effects of them end at death. People's work live on. I'm not saying that that's not the case. But an individual's benefit of a good service or a policy ends when they die. A better way that I can say that is that we must have a proper view of eternity in sight. This is how the writer is encouraging their readers right now. You know, Paul said something similar. He told the Romans that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. So one, we can be encouraged that there is consistency among the scripture, and that's what's, what's happening here. Knowing that we are prone to discouragement, knowing that we are prone to doubt, knowing that we are prone to despair because of what we go through, Paul says is this can't even be compared to what we will receive. Consider what awaits you. As you go through difficult situations, consider what awaits you. As everything around you seems to be crumbling, consider what awaits you. As you're struggling with unbelief, consider what awaits you. As the enemy tells you that God won't forgive you, consider what awaits you. As you're tempted with that same sin that you've already repented of countless times and it feels hopeless, consider what awaits you. Why? The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now let's try this another way. The comforts of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us either. That's not directly our text, so I won't spend 
time on this right now, but just a reminder to hold on to things loosely. I, have a, I had a pastor friend in Atlanta who told me, you know, uh, uh, safety, safety is an illusion. Things feel safe. They appear to be safe, but it's, it's an illusion. Trouble everywhere. So on one end, we're, we're encouraged to have a healthy view of eternity. But on the other end, we must acknowledge that we are in a better position than all of the people listed in this chapter. Now, what I mean is this. Salvation will always and has always, yeah. come on, <laughs> been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Because of all the laws and instructions that God gave people in the Old Testament, some people say, that people in the Old Testament were saved by works, and that is far from the truth. Our works cannot save us, and they've never been able to. We are saved by the blood and not our works. In deep but not profound, we're saved by our blood and not works. <laughs> we like to think that they can because we're very familiar with that concept. If you want something, you work for it. You want to buy a house? You save money and you pay bills on time. Now, a lot of us, we pay the bills, the on-time part, we're working on it. <laughs> you get it when you get it. <laughs> you want to buy a car in cash? Save up for it. You want to run a 5K? Train for it. You want to be saved? Ah. Can't work for it. God's laws were not given for us to keep so that we could lay them before God and say, all right, here you go. I've done them. Let me into heaven. They weren't given to us so that we compare how well we keep them compared to other people. And they weren't given to us because they are a ticket to eternity with God. The people in the Old Testament were saved just like us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Well, why are we in a better position? Why are we in a better position than them, you may ask? It's because we have the privilege of living after Jesus walked this earth and died on the cross. You see, the people were saved by faith that they had in God sending someone that would deliver them. Not simply from their current circumstance, but also for eternity as well. So one could say that they look forward to the cross and we look backwards to the cross. Or another could say that they were saved on credit and we were saved on debit. Or another way to say it is that God, they believe that God would do it while we believe that God would. Come on. They are described as only seeing the promise from a distance, or, or they saw a little flicker. Meanwhile, we have witnessed the light of the world and all of his brightness. Amen. They look forward, we look backward. Or, or I should say that faith is as only as strong as the object of it. Our, our faith is as, uh, only as strong as the object of it, meaning that if the foundation or, or the central piece of our faith is shaky, then our faith and our hope is shaky as well. But if by faith we are trusted in the one who has created and is sustaining everything, then our faith is stable. It's as simple as that. This morning, what does your faith lie? Is it on a solid, solid foundation or on a shaky one? Now, our first, fourth observation of the text is that the, the author encourages his readers with general believers. The author encourages his readers with general believers. Anybody know who Shaquem Griffin is by a show of hands? 
Shaquem Griffin. Shaquem Griffin played football for UCF. Now he plays for the Seattle Seahawks uh, alongside his twin brother. Are you a Seahawks fan? Okay, amen. <laughs> so he plays with his, uh, his, his twin brother, um, Shaquille, I think his brother is. Now, Shaquem, both of them were amazing in college. Both of them played for, for UCF as well. Um, and the thing that makes Shaquem a standout is that he only has one hand. He was born with a condition that, that caused, uh, uh, I, f- I forget the name of it, but basically he was in a whole bunch of pain, uh, when, um, born with a condition that left him in a whole lot of pain. And when, I think when he was about four years old, his mom caught him trying to cut off his hand to try to escape all the pain that he was going through. And so then she decided to just have his, his hand amputated. Right? And, and, and uh, like you, I said, he plays for the Seahawks now, so uh, he, he, he uh, overcame various circumstances and many obstacles. Now, I've seen a couple of videos where some young amputees met him, and they had pure excitement when they met him. Why? Because they met someone who looked like him, who looked like them. They met someone who experienced what they are experiencing. For some of them, they met someone who was playing on a level that they would like to compete on one day. Now, it's not that much different for us. Hebrews 12.1 gives us a picture of our support group. It says that we have a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. These are Christians who have been through what we are going through, have experienced the sinfulness and the evil that's in this world, who have a record of failures and victories in their temptations and are living an eternal life in heaven right now because of their faith in the one who, according to the same book, wrapped himself in flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, and that is the devil. Now, I don't know about you, but there is something that's exciting about being able to know that there is a group of people who are cheering you on. I remember playing uh, uh, recreation basketball, and I remember going to the game, maybe being dropped off at the gym, um, and uh, no one was there. And when I was uh, on the free throw line, as the other team was shooting the free throw, you know, there's this rule that say you can't go until, like, the ball gets to a certain place in the air that's shooting the free throw. And so I remember standing there waiting for the person to shoot the ball, and then they shot the ball. And then I remember hearing my dad's voice say, go. Like, he would tell me when I could go and go for the rebound. Now, at first, I didn't think that anybody was there to support me. But when I heard my father's voice, that did something to me. Now, we probably still lost the game. But (laughs) I knew that I had somebody there that was cheering me on. Or you know how it is if if you're presenting something or playing a game yourself or doing something where people are specifically there for you. You have a fan club. It's the same for us. We have this heavenly fan club, people who are cheering us on. One writer says this, all the saints of the Old Testament, as it were, stand looking on us in our striving, encouraging us unto our duty, and ready to testify into our success with their applauses. They are placed about us until this end. We are encompassed with them. See, we are a people, we are messed up people living in a messed up world, but by faith we are striving to glorify God. Amen? 
God not only gave us the church, but he also gave us a cloud of witnesses so that we can see ourselves as being in company with other like-minded people. Now, we sing this song in church uh, called, Oh, Church Arise, and it says, As saints of old still line the way, retelling triumphs of his grace, we hear the calls and hunger for the day when with Christ we stand in glory. That's a picture of this heavenly cloud of witnesses that we have supporting us. And check this out. They're not obsessed so much with our performance as they are with where we are putting our hope. And that brings us to our last observation. The author encourages us to stay the course. Check out the second half of chapter 12, verse 1. In light of having this support system, this is the proper response. If you want to join them, lay aside every weight and sin that clings closely. Some translations may say entangle you, some say easily beset you. All of them convey the same thing. And that is if you know you got a problem with something, stay away from it. But here is the reality. We love those things. And sometimes we don't want to stay away from it because it feels so good to us. And one thing to remember and let me tell y'all this too. If you ever preached before, you understand this. Or if you ever taught anything, you, 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 you get this. It's almost as if there's, I usually sit right here. It's almost as if I'm imagining there's this big mirror sitting there because I'm talking to myself as well, all right? So as I say, as I'm, as I'm sitting here encouraging you, or you think I'm encouraging you, but I'm encouraging myself. All right, so as I was, as I'm saying this, I'm hurry up and go to sit down, and I come back up here, and I go sit. Yeah, yeah. All right, sin only advertises its pleasures, but not its consequences. Peanut butter is good to the mouse until it's on the trap. I'm hoping that some mice right now at my crib see some peanut butter that looks good to them. <laughs> peanut butter is good to the mouse until it's on. The trap. Sin wants to rule over you. One writer says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And there are also times where we really do hate our sins and we're disgusted with ourselves. And this is where it takes some, some practical back planning. Now, I've been working with Joel for a couple years now, and Joel would probably say that I suck at back planning, right? Back planning is when <laughs> you have uh, a, something that you want to accomplish, and then you say, okay, how do I get to that point? And so let me, let me back plan, right? So what does back planning look like for you? Maybe that's setting up accountability and checking in with them or having them check in with you. Maybe that's getting rid of something. Whatever you need to address the sin that you're dealing with, but whatever you do, however you approach it, it's absolutely key that you're looking to Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of your faith while you do it. In other words, it's nothing, nothing more than behavior modification. If you're not doing it by faith, then it's pointless, right? But if you do it, if you're looking towards Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of your faith, then you're on to something. His example is the best in that he went through agonizing pain because of the joy that was set before him, or he considered what awaited him. And that was fuel for him to stay the course. Now, aren't you glad this morning that the Lord Jesus stayed the course? He wasn't merely an example for us, 
But if we are trusting in him, then we directly benefit from his obedience. Now, let me encourage you in saying this. One, we are encouraged with examples of specific Christians. Two, encouraged through God's faithfulness in our present. Three, encouraged through the reality of not getting everything in the present with a hope to the future. Four, encouraged with vague Christians or this cloud of witnesses. And fifth, we are encouraged to stay the course. Now, before I sit down, I want to, to go back and backtrack. Gideon, the guy who uh, uh, trusted God and reduced his army down to 300. You know, the guys came to him another time and they said, I want you to do something. And Gideon was like, I really don't know if this is for me. And so what I'm going to do is, God, I'm going to take this, 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 this piece of cloth and I'm going to put it outside. Now, if the cloth is wet and the ground around it is dry, I got you. I'm going to do it. So God, all right, cool. Cloth was wet, the ground around was dry. And Gideon said, I still don't know if that's right. I'm going to put this out again, and if the cloth is dry, but the ground around it wet, I got you. God did it. But here's the thing. He put God to the test, which is a no-no. That's one person. David, do I have to spend much time here? Okay. Samson. God went to Samson's parents and said, I'm about to have this son. And he's going to be a, a Nazarite from birth. Now, for the Nazarite, it was some things that they had to, some rules they had to follow. They couldn't drink strong uh, drink with wine or vinegar. They could not cut their hair, and they were to stay away from dead bodies. Now, growing up, in, if you grew up in church and you heard the stories, you know that Samson's uh, downfall is when Delilah cut his hair, right, and he, and he lost all his strength. One day, before that happened, Samson was on his way somewhere. A lion attacked him. He tore the lion up. The, power, the Holy Spirit rushed upon him. He, he, he ripped the lion up. When he was on his way back, some bees who had made a nest in, in, the, in the carcass of, 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 of this lion, this dead lion, he took some to his parents. But Samson, as a Nazarite, you were supposed to stay away from dead bodies. See, Samson's compromise happened way before Delilah. Some, somebody even said that, uh, uh, talking about the honey, they said sin seemed, uh, and he shared it with his, with, his, with his parents, they said that sin seemed sweet when it's secret. <laughs> but God, in his mercy, still kept Samson. Now let me say this. If Samson died a terrible, tragic death. He took out his enemies, but he went right along with them, right? So in one sense, God kept him, because of his mercy, but in the other sense, we have to see the reality of the consequences of our sins. I said all of that to say that with these uh, specific people that we have here in this text, with Gideon, with, uh, with Barak, with Jephthah, who made this foolish vow to God and had to end up killing, I'm, I'm saying all that to say that we have to look to the author and the finisher of our faith. You see, their faith started with God and it ended with God as well. God made a covenant with his son. 
The father made a covenant with the son before the foundations of the earth. And because Jesus was faithful to the covenant that God, that he made with God, we are direct benefits from that. We directly benefit from what Jesus did for us. As the devil brings up all these charges, huh? we see that they were commended for their faith and not condemned by their actions. Another way Joel put it some months ago is that in this, the, the, the last uh, plague with the Passover, they were just required to put blood on the door, on top of the doorpost. Didn't really matter what was going on in the house as long as the blood was visible. I want to encourage you this morning in telling you that you have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, if you're listening to this and you're seeing this as a license to sin or to abuse the, the freedom and the liberty that you have in Christ, you're missing it and you're probably missing the gospel as well. This truth is this big fluffy pillow that we should be resting in when we sin and when we sin, uh, when we sin, when we fall away from God. And I want to let you know this morning that if you are drifting, what an amazing day to repent from your sin and to turn back to God. Amen? Amen. We are saved by grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. This is a beautiful story of God finishing what he started. Despite our actions. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. He has not left it up to you to finish what he has started. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for the truth that you've given us in your word. God, I pray that if there is anyone right now who is feeling the weight of their sin, praise God that the Spirit is telling them that, uh, that they are sinners. But at the same time, God, I pray that they will know that you died for that sin and, and that there is forgiveness in the cross Pray, God, that they will not feel the shame of it to the point to where they feel like you don't want anything to do with them. I pray that would be the truth for all of us. May we be encouraged and motivated to pursue holiness because of what Christ has done for us. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.